Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. to another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Los Angeles, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joining us on the road outside of Nashville, Tennessee, it's the coach, Corey Burton. Oh, yeah, I'm in my home away from home um, in my Chevy Equinox driving home from, uh, from a good day at Lebanon. We're, we're starting to kind of establish a, a real training program now that things are kind of settling in. So um, it's, it's good things are afoot and some potentially big news from Nashville, Tennessee, coming up soon. So uh, stay tuned, and uh, we'll update you on that. Can't tell you what it is, though. All right. Well, we will definitely be all ears for that. But we'd be remiss if we did not introduce the third amigo in the second city, a man who recently uh, jumped aboard the Hamilton train. It's our good friend from Big Town and Counting, Josh Cook. Howdy, folks. Let's, uh, let's wrap up the show, the season. You know, it's been a little bit since the title game. We've been busy and had stuff to do, but this is the time we can finally break down that, uh, that exciting second half of a game that people are confusing with being an all-time classic when it wasn't. Uh, yeah, well, let's hop right into it. Um, in case you have been living under a rock for the past uh, week and a half, uh, Clemson is the new national champion, knocking off reigning national champ Alabama 35-31 in what, as Josh has uh so eloquently stated, uh, a great second half of a football game, especially that fourth quarter by Clemson's offense, was truly astounding. Deshaun Watson, obviously the MVP for the game on offense, 420 yards, three touchdowns, and looked all the part of um, you know a Heisman winner, even though he was the runner-up this year. He looked the part of, of the Heisman winner there in the championship game. So, uh, Josh, I will start with you. What was your biggest takeaway uh, for this game? Uh, well, my biggest takeaway doesn't even have to do with the football game. It just has to do with the, the packaging of it. Like, that first half dragged so long. It started well after 7 because they had to wrap up their TV cast. And a lot of people, self-included, I recorded the second half because I had stuff to do. Game got too late in the Central and Eastern time zone. That's, that's not good. It's not good for football. Um, hopefully... This is only the third tournament. ESPN's already learned that the New Year's Eve games don't work. That's off the schedule next year. Uh, next on the agenda has to be you know, getting the game started at 7 on the dot, not 7.30, not having all those commercials because it's just ruining the viewing experience, I think. And a lot of people that I talked to felt similar. So it would also help if they could, you know, keep halftime to the allotted 15 minutes. Yeah, that would, that would be nice as well. Yeah, that'd be nice as well. Um, in terms of the actual performance on the field, um, you know, one of the things that we talked about way, way back in August was SEC's crop of quarterbacks, we all 
question outside of one or two people. And honestly, I think it just caught up to Alabama. I'm not saying Bama was overrated. I'm not saying the SEC was overrated. I'm just saying when you're going through soft quarterback after soft quarterback for the entire season, when you finally face someone who's a Heisman-worthy player like Deshaun Watson, you just can't adjust to that talent. And honestly, I think that's what happened. He was zipping the passes all over the field. He was reading them like a pro because guess what? He's going to be a pro. He's going to be a really high draft pick. Um, maybe your Buffalo Bills can get him if he falls that far, Matt. Because it seems like they're done with the Tyrod Taylor experience. But that's a different podcast for a different day. Not that I would complain. Uh, the Bills drafted him. Yeah. But uh, you know, you know, say the best quarterback that they could have faced this year would have been Sam Darnold, but he didn't even start in that first game of the year. Exactly. Uh, took on Alabama. So we all saw how he performed in the Rose Bowl. Uh, Coach, uh, you know, Bama's defense really collapsed there at towards the end of the game. And so what do you think it was that Clemson was doing that sort of uh, allowed that to happen? Well, I just think they, uh, they just, they had him diagnosed. I think Mike Scott, the offensive coordinator for the Clemson Tigers, did a great job of diagnosing what Alabama's defense was doing well and what they weren't doing well. And uh, he took advantage of his big-time playmaker, Mike Williams. Catch after catch after catch from that guy uh, became Sean Watson's favorite target. Uh, the tight end, Leggett, had a huge game other than that one uh, egregious drop there. But, I mean, I just think they did a good job offensively of just kind of sit back. They protected better than any team protected all year against Bama. They gave Deshaun Watson the little time that he actually needed, and he was able to pick them apart and uh, literally pick them apart that last play of the game. Um, it just they had, they had Bama on their heels because nobody's really ever been able to do that on that defense, and they were, it, it seemed like they were kind of awestruck a little bit, kind of, kind of surprised that a team could sit back and, and do what they did, and that just kind of led one thing after another. Momentum started shifting, started shifting, started shifting, because Alabama had a chance to really blow that game out of the water. I mean, Clemson gives them an early gift, and uh, all they give up is a field goal out of it. They give them a few gifts, um, great field position a lot in the first half, and that game that game could have blown up in Bama's favor, and we're sitting here talking about the greatest Bama team to ever take the field, but that simply didn't happen. Uh, all the turmoil, turmoil they had on the offensive side of the ball, the offense did not possess the ball enough. So you had a very tired defense out there. So a lot well, of know, that's one thing I wanted to say. Clemson ran 31 more plays than Alabama. It was 108, yeah. 108 to 77. Hurts could hit the broad side of a barn. Oh, yeah. I mean, he, he had that one drive there late in the fourth um, that yeah. he looked good, but that was more him doing it with his legs than it was him doing it with his arm. I mean, he was well under 50%, only 131 yards, 4.2 yards per attempt. That is not terribly great. Um, but one of my favorite moments in the game was uh, the Deshaun Watson quick kick. Josh, I know you're a huge fan of the quick kick, and it worked to perfection in this case. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I sort of threw out before the show that I thought, J.K. Scott putting them deep could be a, a factor in terms of the punt game. J.K. Scott had some unusual hiccups in his game, but I was halfway right with the punting game coming through. That was a, that was a big moment in that game. Yeah, it was a big turnaround field position, uh, so vital in a game like that and against a team like that. If you can flip field on them, 
uh, you put yourself in a, in a, in a situation to where you can gain that momentum. So man, hats off to Clemson. I, I mean, it fooled me. I, as soon as, you know, he took the snap, took two steps up and kicked it. I was like, whoa, because I, I was expecting him to go, again, go for it again. And I was already disappointed that they couldn't pick up a fourth and one earlier or actually on their first series. So, I mean, it was, uh, it was the thing of beauty is perfectly executed quick kick. And, man, I was, you know, it was, uh, for those of you who, uh, it, it was just kind of like the capping moment of what we've been talking about all year long with uh, hashtag, uh, special teams, third phase, most important phase. Absolutely, yeah. So do you have any thoughts to sort of wrap this one up there, Josh? Uh, you know, I, I think that Coach touched on it in terms of the Sark stuff and Dalen Hurts, you know, not being really in rhythm. And I just think in hindsight, maybe it was a little bit of uh, Saban Icarus flying too close to the sun and, and dumping uh, – you know, Kiffin for what seemed like pretty small pettiness. I just don't know how you have an offensive game plan that could come to fruition. And I know they put up a lot of points, but it was pretty herky-jerky there for, for quite a while. And it was a lot, a lot of short fields. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I, I, going back on that, I think Sark was put in a tremendously difficult position. And I thought he did a tremendous job in that difficult position. I know things didn't, didn't go as – as planned, I know things were, you know, they get points here, points there, uh, scored a lot of their points early. And, you know, I, I thought overall he called a good game. Um, and I thought the offense looked pretty fluid um, except for the quarterback. And uh, I think Jalen Hurts just had a tremendously off night and it threw the whole thing into a rye. And when you're in constantly in third and long as a play caller, that's not a good place to be because that sheet starts to get empty when you get third and long and Ben Bullware and uh, that defensive line is getting after you. So, um, so I, I say Sark's going to be fine at Alabama. I think he's, you know, you get a full off season for him to really just kind of sit down with Jalen Hurts. And, you know, I think he can develop him better than Kiffin could. Um, so I, I think it's going to be just fine at the quarterback position, but, you know, it just, it, it put Alabama in a tough spot. And I'm, I'm not sure that, you know, I'm not sure that Kiffin would have done any better, but, I mean, he made the decision to commit to it, so just, you know, sink or swim with it and then figure out the rest later. So, um, And then my last thought on the national championship, Josh, going back to the first thing that you said, my God, it got late, late, late. I mean, they've got to do something. Uh, and the NFL's got to do the same. they got to figure out a way to shorten the games and not necessarily shorten the actual games, but shorten the – uh, game experience for the viewers because I mean even if you're in the stadium so many commercial breaks you start getting bored you start doing other things I I know somewhere in the middle of the second quarter I started spacing out and, uh, finding the end of the internet I mean I, I was I was checked out mentally and a national championship game is not supposed to have that kind of reaction and if no. I'm checking out mentally think about what somebody who is a casual observer of the game of football thinks you know, and they got to kind of they, – they can't appeal. They can't worry about appealing to, to me or you or, or Josh. They got to worry about appealing to the person that – yeah, absolutely, Coach. And so, um, you know, it, it was – it ended up being, you know, a very memorable ending to the game. Uh, and so – but this was not the only national title game that took place uh, in the past week and a half. We also had the FCS Championship where James Madison capped off 
and a thirteen and one season. I should say, it's becoming a fourteen and one season uh, to beat Youngstown State in the FCS title game, twenty eight to fourteen. James Madison was undefeated at the FCS level. Their only loss uh, was to North Carolina, but they were a, a you know a dominant team and a team that we all talked about coming into the tournament could be very dangerous and you know it, they they proved it and they did it with their defense again they held Youngstown State in this game to uh, 292 yards and only 14 points um which you know which they actually they needed to hold them to every single one of those yards because they could not really move the ball at all on offense they only had 253 yards themselves but um you know they were efficient when they did have the ball uh you know usually for the most part using the running game but um you know Khalid Abdullah led them again 101 yards on the ground two touchdowns and it's nice to have a new champion here and I think James Madison we've talked about as a you know a really up-and-coming program and one that we will probably see at the FBS level uh, sooner rather than later. So, uh, Josh, were you able to catch any of this? I did, and it looked to me like possibly playing an extra game made Dugsdown State a little gassed. They were making mistakes that you just can't make against a good team like James Madison. At one point, they uh, had a drive that was doing well, snapped it right over their quarterback's head, lost about 20 yards, drive completely stalled. Uh, I'm almost positive James Madison scored the very next possession. So that was a huge swing right there. Uh, the other thing with Youngstown State is they play a very, very run-heavy offense, and they kept getting behind the chains. And at halftime, Bo Pelini told the you know, sideline reporter exactly that, that they're not an offense equipped to be at third and eight or longer. And they were all day, and you saw that just grind their offense to a halt. Um, I know you gave the offensive numbers, but the, the defense uh, for the Dukes was just outstanding. They came to play. Yeah, they only uh, gave up 3.7 yards per play, which uh, is, you know, that, that's quite frankly phenomenal. Um, you know, they, uh, Youngstown State, the Penguins, they were um, able to get uh, it going a little bit more in the air than they were on the ground, but that was because they were behind 21, 28 to 7 at one point. So, um, you know, uh, Hunter Wells for Youngstown State finished with 271 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. So it wasn't really his, uh, you know, his play that uh, really doomed them. But they just couldn't get the rolling on the ground. And, uh, you know, kudos to the Dukes. So, uh, Coach, you got anything to add? Well, I mean, you know, I, I think you guys said it said it perfectly. You, you know, James Madison had a great game plan. They played they played to a level that everybody expected them to play to, and um, anytime you can completely shut down a, I don't want to call Youngstown State one-dimensional, but they're about as close to one-dimensional as you can get. And anytime you can shut down that one dimension and force them to do something that they're not totally comfortable with, and, uh, and that includes playing behind the chains, it forces a lot of mistakes, a lot of, un, or as they say, unforced errors, a lot of things that Youngstown State does to beat themselves kind of happen. And James Madison kind of dictated that, and and that's, that's the mark of a good team. Sometimes other teams will put the pressure on you, and uh, then all of a sudden you start kind of, you start kind of uh, getting befuddled and uh, mistakes start happening. You start panicking. You're in a spot that you're not used to being in, uh, going against a team that's completely kicking your tail. It's, uh, it's an odd thing to see, and then Youngstown State certainly didn't handle it 
uh, to the best of their abilities. But hats off to James Madison. Uh, job well done. Great game plan. Well executed defense. My goodness. Yeah, you know, uh, they, they were flying around the football. They were making plays. And they were just – they were basically just making it foolproof for, for their offense. And, you know, don't forget, this was Polini's Penguins' 16th game of the year, more than any FBS team will play. So, um, you know, so for the argument about, oh, you know, we need to – can't have a bigger playoff in FBS because uh, it'll be too many games. Well, the FCS already has more. So, um, but we are going to uh, continue now to talk about uh, two coaching moves. Actually, that real quick, just before oh, that. Sorry about that, Josh. We're uh, – uh, throughout the championship hardware, I just wanted to run through uh, D2, Northwest Missouri State won their second straight title. Sixth overall, they beat uh, beat up on North Alabama, actually. Over at D3, we had uh, Mary Harden-Baylor win their first ever title and their first ever appearance over UW Oshkosh. That's the level of football that's been dominated by Mount Union and Whitewater for a million years. So those are two new teams to hear about. And then down in NAIA, St. Francis of Indiana beat Baker. So hats off to all those collegiate athletes. Uh, absolutely. Hats off to all the champions and, you know, everyone who gave, uh, gave us a great season of football. You know, we wouldn't have a podcast if it wasn't for college football. And so we are all obviously very appreciative uh, of all those who contribute to the game. But uh, speaking of some of the biggest contributors to the game, that would be the head coaches. And we have two new ones. Uh, we'll start with the big hiring in the Big Ten, P.J. Fleck, fresh off of a, an undefeated uh, regular season in conference title for the Mac at Western Michigan is heading to the university of Minnesota who has been uh, completely dysfunctional um, of late, even though they did win their bowl game over the pirate. But uh, you know, PJ Fleck obviously is, was probably the biggest name on the market or one of the biggest names on the market besides maybe Tom Herman and he's moving to a situation that is not exactly, uh, you know, the best place to be starting right now. But, uh, Josh, how do you feel? How do you feel about the move from his perspective and from the university's perspective? From the university perspective, it is a home run because by all prognosticators, BJ Fleck was the can't miss hire. And when's the last time Minnesota's gotten that? Never other than maybe their hockey program. So huge for the school. The perspective for P.J. Flack is a surprising one. You know, none of us thought he should take the job. I guess he's from the Midwest. He's a Big Ten guy. He might just have valued jumping into any job. And Hold on. I, I want to I dispel that rumor. Oh, People yeah. say he's a Big Ten guy. He coached at Ohio State for one year as a GA. That is the only time he spent in the Big Ten. He's from the Midwest. He's from the Midwest. We, that doesn't make yeah. him a Big Ten guy. Personally. He's a South Side of Chicago guy. Yeah. From Sugar Grove, Illinois. Yeah. All right. He at least grew up understanding why Big Ten football is so important. And he obviously probably watched it as a kid. I think we could agree on that. Yeah, no, we can. We can. Sorry to cut you off. Go ahead. Yeah. No. Uh, he, he spent time with Shiano at Rutgers, but they're technically now they're Big Ten, but they weren't then. They were in the Big East. But Rutgers is the birth, birthplace of football. Therefore, by proxy, the Big Ten is the birthplace of football. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, no, I just think that he, he must have seen something in this opportunity that the rest of us didn't. Um, you know, they were coming off their bowl win. So that was something 
He's probably looking at the Big Ten West and going, hmm, Iowa's pretty dysfunctional. Nebraska seems pretty dysfunctional. Wisconsin refuses to pay assistance. They just had another one leave. Uh, Purdue is Purdue. So, you know, Northwestern is always going to be erratic because of just all the academics messing up their recruiting. They'll always be that type of program that has, like, one great year followed by two or three bad years and then a bounce back. So maybe he's thinking, holy crap, the Big Ten West is wide open more often than not. He goes there, does really well for two, three years. You know, maybe he can then have the pick of his job because it, it, it seemed like Texas really didn't go after him. LSU obviously didn't even give him a sniff. So while we were on him, it seems like maybe the biggest jobs weren't. And that was his conclusion at the end of the season. You know, I, I quite frankly think it's, you know, obviously it's a risk-reward situation with Minnesota with everything that happened this season, which we have discussed at nauseum, so we don't need to go back over it. But it's, you know, it's a rough situation there right now. And the administration and the athletic department, in specific the football program, seem to have, you know, a lot of tension. And I don't know if – He's the guy who can, you know, resolve that tension. He's a rah-rah guy. He's a real, you know, um, energetic kind of, I wouldn't say in-your-face kind of leader, but, you know, you see him at the end of each quarter sprint down to the other side of the field and things like that. And, you know, that's all well and good when you're winning, when you're 12-0. and But, you know, I think this team is going to, this Minnesota team that he's inherited is going to have some trouble uh, jumping out of the gate next year. Obviously, they have to replace their uh, three-year starter in Mitch Leidner, who, even though we all kind of think he's very overrated, was still... Addition by subtraction, baby. Well, uh, yes. But, you know, you lost that leadership. You have so many guys suspended, dismissed, and all that kind of stuff from the team. And it is... Um, uh, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to see what how it plays out there. Josh, um, actually, when we get to Wilcox, I have a addition uh, additional question for you. But, Coach, how do you think that? Um, you know, is, is this a, do you think this is the right move for Flack, or should he have waited? You know, another year to get you know maybe a little bit more of a prestigious job. I think this is I think this is the right move. I think he kind of maxed out um, what he did at Western Michigan. I think jobs like Western Michigan, you have to capitalize off of a. New Year's Six bowl appearance and, and uh, what he did there. Um, going back to, I, I actually, uh, I went to the AFCA convention, um, and I was giving you guys a live rundown uh, via text message of who all was there and who all I saw. And, you know, for those of you that don't know what AFCA is, it's the American Football Coaches Association. Um, they've actually kind of taken over the old uh, crystal ball trophy, and they pass it out every year to the national championship. So, the national champions will actually get two trophies, um, the crystal ball from the AFCA, and then uh, I guess the playoff trophy, the playoff national championship trophy from whoever the, the committee is. So um, so I was there to see them present that. I actually met P.J. Fleck, all that rah-rah stuff that he does, the sprinting down the sideline, the kind of in-your-face energetic. That's, that's actually him. Um, he is that way in all facets of his life. Um, he is – about as energetic and fired up as you possibly can get. So, you know, a lot of guys that do that stuff, it's not genuine. It's not who they are. It's just kind of them putting on a show. With him, that's who he is. And I think that's why people are drawn to him um, because he's genuine about it. You know, he's just genuinely excited to be there. And his uh, and, and I think it's a home run for him because in his mind, it's a home run. 
you know, in his mind, he's attacking Minnesota like it is Ohio State. Like he's like he got the job at Ohio State. He's attacking it with the same level of excitement. So in his mind, I think it's a home run. I think all of us sitting back looking at the situation saying, oh, I don't know. Uh, but he but he thrives on running into the fire. He thrives on situations like this. He thrives on programs that are going to have a lot of turmoil and things he can fix and, you know, things he can tinker with. So I think he's going to do a good job there. Um, I don't think he's the right fit there. Um, I, I think that situation is different for him, but I do think he'll do a good job. I think he will become the right fit. I don't think initially he's the right fit because not, you know, not people don't necessarily want to want that stuff. But I think once they finally, once he finally kind of gets settled in and they kind of understand that he's that way at home, he's that way at work, he's that way at McDonald's, he's that way wherever he is. Guys, he's the youngest power five head coach in the country. So keep that in mind. Uh, that's probably another thing that was kind of holding him back a little bit because they were trying to make sure if he was for real. So I think it's a good move for him uh, personally because I think if he can do it in Minnesota, he can have his name of any job in three years. So let's say Jim Harbaugh goes back to the NFL. Michigan's going to come call him. Let's say, uh, let's say UCLA comes open. Uh, let's say they keep more for another couple of seasons and, and UCLA comes and uh, all of a sudden Minnesota wins the, the Big Ten West. Well, here we go. P.J. Fleck, come on down. You know, just any job he wants, Tennessee comes open. Uh, I know Butch Jones just made a whole bunch of changes, so they're going to kind of see that out. Um, but, I mean, they could come call it next year. if uh, After next year, if, if Minnesota has a great year, Tennessee is awful, and they fire Butch Jones, they could come, they could come see, him, see him now. So I, I think they're good enough to contend for the Big, Big Ten West in year one, um, possibly. Um, it's one of those teams where, at this point in time, um, there's not, they're not going to be middle of the road. They're either going to be competing for the, for the division championship um, or they're going to be in the bottom. They're going to be on the bottom, in the cellar. Um, so I think it's going to be one extreme or the other for that group, and I think B.J. Fleck is, uh, will eventually become the right guy for that job. He's just got to get in and establish his culture. Speaking of the Big Ten West, uh, the reigning Big Ten West champs, uh, Wisconsin, lost their defensive coordinator, Justin Wilcox, after one very successful season in Madison. And he is left uh, in order to go to Berkeley to become the next head coach of the Cal Bears, who fired Sonny Dykes. Um, Kind of, you know, kind of late, you know, for a team that, um, you know, probably could have made this decision right when the season ended, but instead waited a month. Um, but he is now, after being a, a defensive coordinator at Wisconsin before that, USC, Washington, Tennessee, and Boise State, finally getting his shot uh, to run a program. And he's not a very old guy himself. Uh, he's a man. He's 40. Um, but he is a West. Oh, speaking, speaking of which, I'm going to cut you off for just a second. Uh, Mike Gundy, I saw him speak. His mullet is glorious. Continue. Well, <laughs> that is always good to know. Um, you know, I, I really appreciate any, any Gundy updates you can ever give me. But uh, Wilcox leaves uh, the Badgers after one year uh, to become the coach, head coach of a Cal program. And, you know, I, I think he's kind of, he's kind of an unknown at, at this point, uh, Josh. But, you know, one of the things that you brought up when you were talking about P.J. Fleck was the fact that Wisconsin assistants are leaving left and right for pay raises. Um, one of the interesting things uh, about Wilcox is if he had stayed this 
this year, his pay raise would have been to $920,000, making him the highest paid coordinator in the Big Ten. Um, now, obviously, part of that reason uh, is because uh, a lot of the high-profile assistants have uh, recently left their posts for other jobs. We think about Chris Ash, Tom Herman, um, uh, the new coach at Indiana, uh, um, and uh, things like that. But, you know, I, I, I still think that the idea that Wisconsin doesn't pay their uh, assistant coaches as much is uh, as much, uh, much to do with, you know, situation as it does with actual uh, thriftiness on behalf of the university. Now, obviously, they do have one of the lowest uh, average pay for their assistant coaches, but it is still, uh, you, you have to look at it with a little bit of context, but let's go back to Cal and Josh, do you think that Wilcox will be able to sort of lead a resurgence there or, you know, what can we even expect from him? Well, it's an interesting moment. I think it's kind of a, uh, it's a potential home run because you can't beat them, join them. Football is one of the most copycat sports around. So if you look at the Pac-12 this year, Colorado had the best defense statistically. Washington had the second best. They were your champions. Stanford, always a good defense, but another 10-win season. Um, uh, Utah routinely plays good defense. They had a 9-win season. I'm leaving USC out because they are the top dogs. They always get to recruit the best athletes. It's just a matter of them putting it all together. USC is in a different stratosphere. And Washington State, when they had their nice run, actually played some of the best defense of Mike Leach's tenure. Bottom teams, Oregon likes to have offense. Arizona has Richrod, offensive genius, supposedly. UCLA has had a ton of injuries, but Mora is an offensive guy. Arizona State has been trying to copy Oregon and have that crazy offense. And Cal kind of stuck in the middle. They had Sonny Dykes, and before that, they had Jeff Tedford. They were an offensive go, 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 go team and gotten worse and worse and worse. So they are flipping around. They're getting a defensive guy. They're going to try and join the top of this league. Maybe they'll be able to do it. And if they do, then like I said, Wilcox is a home run. If not, they'll be stuck in no man's land yet again, and they'll sort of be similar to Oregon State where we don't really know the identity of the team. It's also strange, it's also strange to think about that a year ago at this time, he'd just been fired from USC as defensive coordinator. <laughs> now he's hired at Cal as head coach you know, in the same league. Well, I mean, that's the thing. USC knows that they have the talent, so if they don't put it together, the coaches are getting gone. This is true. This is true. Corey, how do you feel about this uh, for the Golden Bears? I like it. Uh, I've always kind of liked Justin Wilcox. I, I think sometimes situations don't work, um, and that doesn't mean that across the board he's a he's a bad coach. But um, some situations don't work, and that that was true. That was the case at USC. It worked at Wisconsin, um, and he's reaping the benefits. I, I think it's a good hire for Cal. I, I kind of question the timing of it a little bit, um, but for for Wilcox, I think you know for him. You know, his head's going to be spinning for a little while. Uh, he's going to have a lot to kind of focus on. And uh, recruiting-wise, he's going to have an extremely uphill battle. Uh, being named three weeks before signing day is never never good for the, for the signing class. So let's hope the administration has a little bit of patience with him. Um, the first year is probably – I'm just going to go ahead and predict it. It's probably not going to be very good. 
might be slightly better than or equal to what what this past season was for Cal. So um, five and be seven. Ready, yeah, be ready for that. Maybe six and six is, is probably is probably realistically where, where you're looking at Cal. Um, but you'll see the the clues you'll be able to see is that the guys get fun, more fundamentally sound. They get more competitive. They stay in games longer. Uh, they compete harder in all facets of the game. And it, it's tough to explain, but you can just kind of see it. You can just, if you watch closely enough, you can just kind of see it. And it doesn't necessarily jump out at you, but you could just, it almost just feels different. Like the team just feels like they're getting better. And that's all it takes sometimes. You know, with Georgia, it didn't always look pretty. They actually had a worse regular season record uh, by three games or two games. They won. They went seven to five last year. They went nine and three in the regular season. Won their bowl game. Um, similar record to Rick's first year, except Rick went eight and four, lost the bowl game, and Kirby went seven to five and won the bowl game. So, um, similar situation. You hire a new guy. Uh, he doesn't jump on board until about you know last week when, when he did, and uh, it's about the same time Kirby jumped on full-time uh, with Georgia. So it's a similar situation, both good defensive coordinators. So he, he's going to have a lot to catch up on. And if he can do it, it's going to be a good situation for them um, because that, that area, that Bay Area, if they can recruit that well, they will be fine. They will be good. And I think Justin Wilcox knows the league well enough that – you know, he can hire himself a really good offensive coordinator and he can and he can get things done. So I'm excited to see it. Um, to be honest, I have no idea. I can't even begin to predict which direction it's going to go. If I had to give my best guess, I'm thinking they're going to go six and six. Um, but to, to say that I truly feel that way would be – I'd be lying to you because I just don't know. I'm intrigued, but I'm going to keep my eyes on it. I'm interested in what they're going to do because I think Justin Wilcox is an interesting type of coach. But uh, we'll see what kind of what he brings to Cal and, and how fast he can bring it. Yeah, it's going to be, for me, interesting to see who he hires around him. That will be the most telling thing to me, especially what they're going to end up doing on offense. Are they going to stick with the air raid? Are they going to go to something a little bit more pro style? If you think about the offensive coordinators he's worked with at his past few stops, they are all much more pro style guys, whether it's at Boise, Washington, SC, or Wisconsin. So I would imagine that he would uh, probably be moving towards that, but you also have to wonder about with the personnel that they have, what are, um, you know, how are they going to, how are they going to make that work? So it, it'll be fun to watch going down the road in the future, but for us right now, that is going to wrap up uh, today's episode. We will be back with a couple recruiting specials before signing day, uh, probably a podcast on or the day after signing day, talking recruiting, uh, going to have some off sort off-season special pods like we did last year and, you know, maybe a couple new segments. So there will still be a lot uh, to listen in for on the off-season. But we want to thank all of you very, very much for tuning in to Illegal Motion throughout the season. And uh, we hope that you all had a wonderful, wonderful college football year. We certainly did. So uh, any final words, Josh? No. I think it's another successful season. Thank you, fellas. All right. Yes. Coach. 
we'll see you signing day and uh, we'll keep this train rolling. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, on behalf of the coach, Corey Burton, and on behalf of our intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting, Josh Cook, this is the professor, Matt Perkins, saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah! Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.